About 10 years ago, Tim Keller wrote a very, very important article. Tim uh, Keller, Pastor Keller, uh, used to pastor a church in Manhattan and uh, planted a number of churches and just has an ability to understand the demographics both of our culture and also in the context of the church. He wrote a very helpful article about the difference in culture for different sized churches. I mean, it's not a newsflash to you, but a 200-person church isn't the same as a 4,000-person church. But it's different in ways that most of us don't even fully understand. Here's what he wrote. He said this. We tend to think of the chief differences between churches mainly in denominational or theological terms, but that underestimates the impact of size on how a church operates. The difference between how churches of 100 and 1,000 function may be much greater than the difference between a Presbyterian and a Baptist church of the same size. The staff person who goes from a church of 400 to a church of 2,000 is in many ways making a far greater change than if he or she moved from one denomination to another. A large church is not simply a bigger version of a small church. The difference in communication, community formation, decision-making processes are so great that the leadership skills required in each are of almost completely different orders. So Keller is not completely diminishing the differences of, between denominations. He's not discounting theological distinctives. But what he's doing is speaking into something that's really, really important, and that is this that the size of a church actually has a more substantial effect on that church's culture than what many of us realize. Last week I shared with you that College Park Church was planted with a handful of families in 1985. The reason that we're talking about this is because this church went from that small group of people in 85 to now 4,000 with a family of self-governing churches, four other churches that we're in close relationship with. We have an eldership of over 40, of just about 40 elders, almost 40 elders, and a budget of $13 million. And the, the challenge is that most of us have not grown up in a church this size. In fact, the number of large churches, over 2,000 in the United States, is at an all-time historical high. For instance, in 1960, just in your mind, guess the number of churches that were 2,000 or more. It's 16. By the year 2007, there were 1,250. So 16 to 1,250. And from then, now, in 2020, it's around 1,600. So there's lots of churches now that are large and are our size, and yet, get this, the average church size in America is still below 100 people. Now why is that important? Here's why. Because most of us have an emotional attachment to a particular size of church. And usually that emotional attachment is related to your first almost, or most intimate spiritual experiences. And once that happens, as good as that sort of spiritual experience is, sometimes it can be hard not to project sort of your emotions negatively on anything that's different than what your first experience was. It sort of like, would, would be like comparing every family vacation to your honeymoon. <laughs> not a good idea, all right? It's, it's gonna be different, it's gonna be good, but it's not gonna be the same. The, the challenge is, is sometimes, and I've seen this happen, where believers can not just project emotionally based upon that past, they can actually even spiritualize that past. 
Keller writes this about that trend. He says, most people tend to prefer a certain size culture, and unfortunately, many give their favorite size culture a moral status. Like, that's, that's the way to do church. That's a better way. And they treat other size categories as spiritually or morally inferior. They may insist that the only biblical way to do church is to practice a certain size church culture, despite the fact that the congregation they attend is much too big or too small to fit that culture. So, Give you another example. Sometimes I run into people who in their college days were part of a really intense discipleship environment. Maybe it was because of a great organization like Crew or Navigators or um, Campus Outreach. And what they found is like their guys or their girls and they studied the Bible, they were in a secular college environment and man, that was intense, they grew spiritually. And then the challenge is that for the rest of their lives they compare every discipleship group to that thing that happened in college. And the result is they feel like there's no real discipleship except what happened in college. We all do that at one level. Maybe your first house that you had was like, that was the house. Or your first dog, that was the dog. Or your first kid, like that was the kid, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we, we just tend to do that. We tend to just take our first experiences and then emotionally project them. And we do it just because we're human beings. And when we do it in the context of church, it's fairly common, but it can also make church life kind of difficult. So one of the reasons that we're doing this two-part series, it's not an expositional uh, series per se, is just to remind us, what is it that College Park Church is committed to? In the midst of all kinds of gospel preaching churches in our city, in the midst of uh, lots of things that are changing around us, even things in which, as a church, we're changing in ways that um, are helpful and strategic, and some, I'm sure, to you that are challenging at times, who are we? Well, I wanna remind you about our core values. And those core values come out of our mission, which is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. That's simply our expression of the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. All churches have the same mission, go and make disciples. We just express it as igniting a passion to follow Jesus. And the core values are the things that have characterized the church, our church, since its founding. Now, how we express those in 85 are different than how we express them in 1995, in 2005, and in 2020. And you should be thankful for that. Because if we were still trying to be the same way that we were in 1985 in 2020, we might as well just um, put a little sign out that says, church museum, come on in, right? So the church needs to always be reforming, needs to always be changing, and yet there are some things that should never change in terms of what a church at its core is committed to. Now, the expressions of those things might change, but the fact that those things are who we are need to remain the same. So last week I shared with you our six core values as a church. So if you're here the first Sunday today, you're gonna hear a little bit about who we are and who we aspire to be even moving forward. Talked about the preeminence of Jesus, meaning at the end of the day, why we exist is to help people meet, love, follow, and obey Jesus. The main thing is to keep the main one, Jesus, the main thing. I want you leaving today more in love with Jesus. Secondly, authority of the word, that our authority for ministry practice, for preaching, for all that we do in life comes out of the scriptures, that real life change is embedded in the Bible. And then redemptive community, we believe that spiritual growth was something that we're supposed to do together, that in the midst of an individualized, customized society, that doing spiritual growth in community with other people is how God designed it. That means it's gonna be messy, can be challenging, not always gonna be linear, always gonna be uncomfortable, 
That's what spiritual growth is. So if spiritual growth for you is comfortable, easy, and you like it, you're probably not growing. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is you need people in your life to help you pursue Jesus. Now, we're gonna look at these other three values today. Extravagant grace, biblical unity and diversity, and the call to go. I wanna cover them in a little bit of a different order. We're gonna start in Romans chapter 12 with the concept of extravagant grace. So, Romans 12, 9 to 21 is a signature passage about how do believers live in the midst of a broken world. We don't have time to unpack it in total, but in verses 9 to 13, there are 13 commands. As I read the scriptures, you probably heard them. I mean, one after another. And these commands reflect sort of the basics of the Christian life. What are Christians supposed to do when they live in a broken world, when they hang out with broken people, and they're broken themselves? So... I hope it's comforting at one level that the Bible just acknowledges that there are things that Christians need to do in the midst of their brokenness. So what are they to do? Well, look at verse nine. The text says, let love be genuine. Paul speaks into this issue that when we think about grace, love needs to be genuine. That means without deception, that you're not loving people so they'll love you back or loving them so they think you're loving or being kind to people so other people think that you're kind, but that you're, you're truly kind for all of the right reasons, that you extend grace to people because it's the right thing to do, and that it's genuine, which also means that it's not filled with hypocrisy, which means that you don't like love people in front of them and then cut them down behind their back. Verse nine also says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This, it's not just general goodness that you're to cling to, but it means goodness even in the context of relationships. Abhor the things that create negative, hurtful relationships and cling to the things that are good. He then says, verse nine, love one another with brotherly affection, that when we gather together as a church, part of the aim is for you to have other people with whom you have sort of a family feel. Doesn't mean that you'll feel that way about or with every person in the context of this church, but it means that there's a connection related to your common relationship with Christ. And then in verse 10, it says, outdo one another in showing honor, which means we ought to live in consideration and deference to other people. That you're not just thinking, what about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? That church means to be a part of a group of people where you're actually thinking about others as being more important than yourself. In fact, that's what Philippians chapter two says. What exactly does that mean? Well, Tim Keller, in another little book called Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, a book I would commend to you all, says this, humble people don't think less of themselves, humble people think of themselves less. Probably heard that before. It just—it's a really helpful statement. Humble people don't think of themselves, don't think less of themselves. They're not walking around going, "I'm so stupid. I don't know anything." Because a lot of times that kind of talk is just praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. Right? It's a subversive, hidden pride issue. It's not that they think less of themselves. It's that they think of themselves less. Humble people think of others, and they are surprised. I didn't even think about myself in that situation. So when we think of extravagant grace, I'm thinking of John's word in John 1.14 when he said this about Jesus, that we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. 
So the reason why extravagant grace is so important is because it needs to be matched with a commitment to biblical truth. That the glory of Jesus was expressed in both of these, and I think church is at its best when truth and grace combine. I think you're at your best as a follower of Jesus when you balance grace and truth. And the reality is, is that most of us have sort of a bias one way or another. We tend to be truth people or grace people. And here's the thing, churches tend to be the same way. Some churches are just known for truth. They just cut it straight every single Sunday without concern how it's gonna land on people. And there's other churches that are so gracious you wonder if they even own a Bible, right? Are you gonna say yes or no about anything? And our aim as a church, is to take our preeminence of Jesus and the authority of the word and to be as deeply committed to those and then to be as deeply committed to extravagant grace. So we wanna go deep with God's truth, but we also wanna go deep with our care for people. So here's how we describe it. We desire to be a community of believers who treat others with the same extravagant grace that God has lavished upon us. If you're a follower of Jesus, can I just remind you that Jesus rescued you from all your sin? When you're hearing David's story up here about being a statistic, I know every single believer resonated with that. You were like, yep, me too. Jesus came and sought me while a stranger, while I was wandering from the fold of God. He came and rescued me. He bought me back. And God extended grace to you and to me when we were not deserving of it. And so therefore, we yearn to demonstrate this grace through our church culture and our lives in a way that is transparent and real and helpful. We want to be a blessing to each other, the city of Indianapolis, and the world. So the vision of extravagant grace is this, that the church of Jesus Christ should be marked by a different spirit. There's a spirit of the age, the spirit of the world, And the idea is there is to be a different kind of spirit in the church. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 of Romans 12. Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So the idea is that the church of Jesus Christ is deeply committed to truth, but also deeply committed to grace. And can I just encourage you that both you in how you talk and how you act and the context of our church and how we talk and how we act need to be a community of people who are committed to extravagant grace, especially in the midst of a culture right now where the gracious middle is going away. The gracious middle is going away. Rather, our culture today is known more for rants, sharp words, being against things. I I pastored a church in Holland that was an independent fundamentalist church, and I worked for 10 years to try and help that church to be known for what they are for, not just what they are against. They were known, when I got there, they were known to being against everybody including most Christians in the city who had compromised, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what I'm finding within our culture and even within evangelicalism, it seems as though that spirit is evolving, that we'll walk into a room and people want to know, what do you think about that? Are you against this? Are you against that? Are you against that? Are you against that? And if you don't answer the question correctly, it's, well, I don't know about you. 
The challenge is, is that so often the church is off track when it's simply known for what it's against, not just what it's for. Extravagant grace shows up in how we handle our money. People who've been graced, according to the text, they contribute to the needs of the saints, they show hospitality, they hold their possessions and their time loosely. It means that we are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. James 1.19. You want people to know you're a Christian? Just put that verse on right now. We, we want the extravagant grace of God to be felt in our relationships where 1 Corinthians 13, we believe all things, bear all things, hope all things, and endure all things. To practice biblical hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I love that title. She said this, those who live out ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know the gospel comes with a house key. So can I just encourage you even today as we end our service to look around and realize that God's given you an unbelievable amount of grace and then give grace to other people? To be the kind of people who practice hospitality even in the context of your church on Sunday morning? Because there's people who come and they look like they're all put together, but behind the scenes they're lonely, they're hurting, they're afraid, they're nervous, isolated, they've had a really hard week. And what if the church of Jesus Christ, what if our church could be part of being a refuge in the midst of a culture that has so much pain, so much challenge, so much animosity? I got a wonderful email this last week from Kendall Carlson, whose husband is in a fight with cancer, just demonstrates extravagant grace. And you know, I, I hear this stuff all the time. In fact, when I run into people in our community and they say, hey, um, my boss goes to your church, I'm never like, oh no, right? <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm like, yeah? Because I know invariably what's gonna happen. They're gonna tell me an amazing story about the way in which our people are living on mission and extending grace to people around them. And here's just an example. She said this, I think you would be so proud of the people in our church if you knew even a fraction of the ways that they have poured out overwhelming support on us over the past few months. People we didn't know deeper than a hello in passing have jumped in enthusiastically to meet needs that we didn't know that we had. Doing our laundry every week, packing our kids' lunches, bringing them home from school, not to mention meals, ironing, yard work, cleaning vehicles, hospital visits, house cleaning, babysitting, financial gifts, and countless other offers of help and pledges of prayer. Certainly those close to us have cared for us incredibly well, but also an amazing number of college parkers we don't know have rallied around us too. And I just thought if I were in your position, I would want to hear how Jesus has done something really incredible and special to the people of College Park, and it has been so humbling to witness to him be all the glory. That's extravagant grace. And I just want to encourage us. That's one story. Let's do more of that. So extravagant grace, a really unique value that this church has lived out over its 35 years. Here's the second one. It's this biblical unity in diversity. So from the planting of this church, College Park Church has uniquely been known as a place where people from all walks of life could worship together. That's not new. That's the way this church has been from the very beginning. It's taken on different um, dynamics, different expressions over the years. Romans 12, verse 15, puts it this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
So notice both. You're to rejoice with people who are rejoicing, and you're to weep with those who are weeping. You're not to be critical of the people who are rejoicing if they're rejoicing too much, like settle down. And you're not to be judging whether or not those who are weeping should be weeping or not. It just says, join those who are celebrating and join those who are in sorrow. And then it says this, live in harmony with one another. I love that Paul uses this word, and that the ESV translates it this way, because harmony is two notes individually put together that make a sound by being played together that they wouldn't make if they were played on their own. He then says, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. One of the biggest hindrances to biblical unity and diversity is being wise in your own sight. So how is this value played out in our church? This means that our church has worked hard to be convictional about the right things, but not be convictional about everything. When I did a series in Romans, on Romans 14 and 15 in particular, I walked you through a model that I think is helpful, I didn't create this, but it's been helpful for me when I think about how do we preserve unity in the midst of diversity, and I shared this with you then. And for those of you who weren't there, let me just give you a quick summary of this. When you think of issues in life, particularly theological issues, you have to think about them as whether or not this is an absolute. Is this something you have to believe in order to be a Christian? Is this a conviction, something that I believe the Bible teaches, that I believe strongly, and some convictions are more close to absolutes, but they're not absolutes, but they're really strongly held convictions. In fact, some churches define themselves, understandably so, by some of those convictions, Then there's outer rim convictions, and then there are preferences. And what you need to know is that legalism is taking a preference issue and treating it like it's an absolute. You emotionally are like, man, you can't be a Christian unless you have this view on alcohol or music style or things of that sort. But theological liberalism is taking an absolute issue like the deity of Christ and treating that like it's a preference. It doesn't really matter if you think Jesus is the Son of God or not. Take it or leave it. And the key in order to live in unity is understanding the difference between a conviction an absolute, or an absolute, a conviction, and a preference. And this is the way that Christians have to think. And by the way, you don't just have to think this way in the church. You have to think this way as a parent. If you don't know the difference between a preference issue and a conviction issue and an absolute issue in the context of your home, you will make mountains out of molehills and frustrate your children to no end. This is the way you need to think about relationships in terms of who you hang out with and how do you have a conversation with somebody without it getting overly heated about things that you view differently. You need to think about this in terms of how you engage in discussions in our culture. You need to think about this in regards to politics. You need to think about this in terms of your desires and your preferences and things that you believe strongly because sometimes people take their preferences and they treat them like this is a heaven or hell issue when the reality it isn't. The Bible is filled with examples of people who had a good issue and they held it in the wrong way. So, understanding this distinction and knowing where to draw lines is really important. Let me be clear, it's not that the differences between different churches are unimportant, but it's really important that you get those in the right order of importance. So I don't wanna say differences don't matter. Differences at times do really matter different views, but we need to be sure that we get them in the right order of importance. So this biblical value relates to theological issues. It also relates to ethnic issues, and specifically about racial reconciliation. 
Biblical unity and diversity acknowledges that Jesus seeks to redeem people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Revelation chapter 7. That Jesus, by virtue of his burial and resurrection, created a new people. That, re that reconciliation is not something to be achieved, it's something to be received. Jesus already did that. The book of Revelation describes this vast group of people who are all assembled in front of Jesus, and the question is, do we have to wait to heaven for that to happen? Or can we have some semblance of that happening even now? You see, the uniqueness of the early church was that in the midst of, for instance, the city of Antioch, here was a group of people who were gathering in a segregated city, a city that had walls dividing people of different ethnicities, and this church begins to gather, and they worship together, they love each other, they share resources. So much so that the culture didn't know what to call them. They weren't Jews, they weren't Greeks, they weren't slaves, they weren't free. There was no category for these people, and so the people of the city gave them a name, and they called them Christians. Christians. Because underneath the most strident categories within their culture, the people understood who they really were. They were fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This value recognizes that Jesus tore down the walls between ethnic groups. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, he made one new man. So here's how you could think of this value. We want, the, we want to reflect the beauty of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in building the multifaceted and multi-ethnic body of Christ. And in our personal relationships, theological systems, and our ministry forms, we are committed to celebrating both our unity and our diversity in Christ. And within the framework of sound doctrine and humility, we want our differences to be in the right order of importance. Listen, it's easy to grow a church with just one particular type of people in it. Homogeneous churches grow fast because there's very little challenge. But there's something beautiful about male and female, young and old, new convert and mature believer. Something beautiful about people of different educations, different cultures, different ethnicities, different tastes, different political positions, all who worship at the feet of Jesus. I know it makes it complicated. I know it makes it messy. That's what the church has always been, and when the church isn't messy, something is wrong. So in a world that is increasingly tribal, both outside the church, and frankly, also inside evangelicalism, it presents a really unique opportunity for a church to be a different kind of community of believers. So just for instance, this Sunday in God's providence is both Sanctity of Life Sunday and is the Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So we need to be clear that the killing of innocent children in the womb is horrible. The marring and destroying of God's image is inexcusable. And we also need to be clear that the treating of people in any way inferior due to their ethnicity is also horrible, a devaluing of the very image of God. And we have to be a church that is both anti-abortion and anti-racism. In order for the church to be full of unity, both need to be true. Now, some of you who are kind of um, a connoisseur of discernment blogs that are out there. You're like, well, what about critical race theory and intersectionality and cultural Marxism and all of that? And here's what I would say, just to be very simple. We gotta love our neighbors, we love ourselves. Jesus bought reconciliation and somehow, some way, the church is at its best when people lean in despite the fact that the church, especially in this country, in its history, has not leaned into this issue, we've leaned away from it. 
Some of you may wonder why in 2019 we spend so much time talking about this. Is because the racial reconciliation is more important than the abortion issue? Of course it isn't more important. Both are equally important, but here's the challenge. The church generally understands the abortion position. We've got a lot of work to do about how to talk about, think about, and look at how the Bible thinks about this issue of reconciliation. So we spent more time on it because it's a steeper hill to climb for most of us in terms of our upbringing. That's why. So what does it mean for the church to be filled with harmony? It means that there are two things not necessarily identical that together make something even better. And that's what biblical unity and diversity is and has always been in various forms at this church. Third and last, the call to go. So Matthew 20, 18, or 28, 18, and 19, the disciples gather at the top of the mountain. Jesus gives them a commission. And rather than saying, build a little commune and hang out together, he says, go, go into all the world. They weren't to huddle, they were to scatter. They were to live on mission. And you need to know that is our mission as well, that we gather, but we don't gather to stay here. We gather to be instructed, to be helped, to have a, a bit of soul rest, to receive God's word, and then to go out into the world. Living on mission means that we connect what it means for Jesus to be preeminent to now our mission to go. So the aim is to send you, to get out of here, love one another for a little while, and then go out and reach the world. One of the reasons that we started planting churches in 2014 through the Next Door Mission, we took our debt service when we were debt-free, we rolled that into planting churches, and since 2014, we've planted four churches. And the reason we did this is because we believe, not that it makes sense financially, it makes no sense financially, but it makes every sense for the kingdom. We sent 600 people away, 600 good people and a few bad ones. We sent them away. <laughs> yeah, it's true, we did. And, uh, <laughs> just a few, and uh, we sent them away, 600 people, and those churches are now thriving and growing and helping to reach their neighbors in their community, and they're doing a phenomenal job of reaching their neighbors in a way that this church could never do here at 96th in town. Let me give you a few examples, other examples. For example, Lincoln and Maya, high school students, juniors, they're passionate about witnessing to their friends in their school, and they also host a monthly worship gathering in their home, in, in Lincoln's home, in their basement, where up to 30 students come, and many of them are not part of a gospel-preaching church. Josh Harbour, one of our elders who now is serving on the mission field, left his job here in the United States and uses his gifts overseas to help ministries with partner development. Or Luke Humphrey, one of our residents. We started a residency program. There are churches who have pastors and even church plants have pastors because of our residency program. Luke and his wife, Laura, are planting a church in the United Arab Emirates, trying to find a way to both have a church facility and preach the gospel in that needy area. Many of you will know about Purposeful Design. David Palmer, one of our elders, and his wife Cindy sold their house in Carmel, moved down to Brookside, started Purposeful Design, a business that is also a discipleship model, and Cindy started Heart Change, which is a discipleship program for women, and just go online and Google uh, Purposeful Design. I was watching HGTV, yes, I do watch it every once in a while with my wife, and I saw Purposeful design on a program, good bones. I was like, what in the world? There's my people right there, changing the landscape of our city. Or Frank and Dory Morton, who used to be members here, they left to go plant Nehemiah Bible Church. 
They started this thing called Makerspace, which is a math and science initiative for kids in the neighborhood. And they recently started something called the Boys Bible Club, where in their garage they play video games and then study the Bible. That's awesome. I want to go, right? And also Rick and Danielle sold their home in Brownsburg, moved to Brookside to be part of a new housing initiative, and their story was recently featured in the Indy Star in the month of August. This is just a few stories. I can tell you story after story after story after story. The thing that I love about this church is not just our commitment to the Bible and our commitment to Jesus, but I love the way in which our people, in all of our messiness and all of our brokenness, go out and find ways to reach the world creatively, powerfully, with a sense of mission and purpose, our people are discovering ways to take the good news of Christ wherever they are. And I know there are things that you're doing that nobody knows about. So, preeminence of Jesus, authority of the word, redemptive community, extravagant grace, biblical unity and diversity, the call to go. These are the things that define what College Park is, what makes her a special and unique church. In the midst of all the gospel preaching churches, these are the things that define our community and our culture. So what am I inviting you to do? Well, our discipleship strategy is this. Belong, grow, multiply. Because of our mission and our values, we want you to belong. We want you to be a member here. We want you to be baptized, to go public with your profession of faith in Christ. Why become a member? Because throughout the history of the church, it's assumed that there are elders that you are accountable to, a body of people that you said, you're my people. Becoming a covenant member is a way that you move from consumer to actually becoming part of the covenant community. And in the midst of a culture that just kind of is down on long-term commitments or commitments of any kind, why not be the person who goes counter to that culture and says, you know what, it's important for me to make it official and say, I need to be a covenant member. I want you to grow. What does that mean? Define community in some expression. The largest way that we do that here is small groups, but you can find community in some of our classes or our adult big groups or men and women's Bible studies. I want you to be in an environment where care and content are a part of your life, where you're known and you know other people and find ways to study the Bible together. And then finally, I want you to multiply. So belong, grow, and multiply to go where you are in the world and talk about Jesus, to spread the gospel to use your gifts. God's given each of you a spiritual gift. Sometimes it's a supernatural thing that you didn't have before you came to Christ. Sometimes it's just abilities that God gives you that he supernaturally blesses. Some of you are unbelievably kind and you need to walk out of here today and look around and see people that are hurting because there's others of us who just don't have that natural eyesight. Some of you are unbelievable communicators. You need to find ways to use your writing gifts, your blog posts, or your um, ability to communicate the, the, the word of God and to find ways to help others do the same. Some of you are unbelievably gifted at making money and you ought to make a lot of it and then give as much away as you possibly can and help fund things that other people wouldn't be able to fund and change the landscape of evangelicalism and the scope of what it means to reach people for Christ. The key is this, find a way to multiply yourself in service to others. Find a way to use your gifts, to belong, to grow, and then to multiply together. Because at the end of the day, our mission is this, it is to ignite a passion to follow Jesus, and we do that together at God's little expression called College Park Church. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, grant us grace to be your people who follow you faithfully, who know what the Bible says, know how to put things in the right order of importance, 
how to be charitable when we don't agree, how to be thoughtful when we have questions, and God, how to be more like Jesus a year from now than we are today. So God, you're a God full of grace, full of mercy. You've transformed our lives because of Jesus. So God, would you not only remind us of that, but make us a people so on fire for you that people would want what we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.